Welcome to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. In this podcast, we break down high-profile celebrity estate planning cases for advisors and their clients. Most celebrity estate catastrophes are based on the same issues that everyday people face, just with the volume turned up. Our goal is to identify and extract the individual estate planning issues that lie at the heart of each story. We then discuss what advisors should expect and how to avoid common pitfalls. Hosted by WealthManagement.com Senior Editor David Lenock. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of WealthManagement.com's Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. For anyone new to the podcast, in each installment, myself and a guest take on a different celebrity estate and attempt to extract some key lessons that planners can apply to their more traditional clients. The idea being that celebrity estate planning stories, although often ridiculous in their details, generally have at their cores very basic issues that can just as easily apply to non-famous or fabulously wealthy clients. We have a returning guest today, David Lesperance. David is the founder and principal of Lesperance & Associates and is one of the world's leading international tax and immigration advisors. A published author in the field, David's personal interest in these areas of law grew from his experience working as a Canadian immigration and customs officer while studying law. Since being called to the bar in 1990, he's established his expertise with major law firms his own law firm, and as a private consultant. David, ugh, David has successfully advised scores of high and ultra-high net worth individuals and their families, many of whom continue to seek his counsel today. In addition, he's provided pro bono advice to many governments on how to improve their citizenship by investment, re residence by investment, or golden visa type programs to better meet the needs of global clients. David is supported by a team of professionals, some of whom have worked with him since early 1990s. Thanks so much for joining us, David. My pleasure, David. And just as a side fun fact, I believe David may have been on our first or close to our first episode of the new title of the, when we changed the title of the show over from Dead Celebrity to Celebrity Estates. So uh, it's, it's been a minute since he's been on, but it, welcome back. Thank you so much for, uh, for reaching out uh, in a very interesting time in our world. Yeah, that's, that's one way to put it. Um, you know, normally this is the part where I tell everyone what celebrity we're going to cover this week because, you know, that's kind of the whole conceit of this show. Um, and my initial choice for this episode was Madeleine Albright, who passed a few weeks back. Um, given her connection to sort of the UN and the secret former Secretary of State and sort of the international nature of, of what we're going to talk about. But I think this time our subject is a little more sensitive and timely than usual, being the ongoing war and humanitarian crisis in Ukraine. Uh, so we're going to forego the celeb story a little more than usual this time and move straight into our main topic. Um, David, the Russian attack on Ukraine is actively shaking up what we thought was a very well-established global order. You, know, you often stress the need for high net worth clients to have a, a backup plan. How has the conflict changed that outlook and, and how can high net worth clients protect themselves in this new paradigm? Well, where I'm at right now actually particularly highlights this in my own life. I am in I live in Gdansk, Poland, with my Polish wife and uh, soon-to-be eight-year-old twins. We, of course, uh, I'm a native Canadian. We have Canadian uh, documents, passports, etc. So we have kind of a backup plan already set up. But with the invasion um, and the dealing of the world with Mr. Putin and kind of what he's going to, what is he going to do next? Um, has really shaken a lot of people out of a sense of complacency because of the international nature of uh, 
this is a, the largest kind of land war in Europe, but also, um, you know, two oceans don't protect North America from, for example, cyber attacks, which uh, just in the last day or two, we've heard uh, rumblings of uh, Soviet uh, or Russian um, cyber attacks going on. And here in Poland, it's interesting as a foreigner moving to Poland to see that the, the Poles have been dealing with this type of situation literally for centuries. Uh, and Poland is one of the most fought over territories from kind of the Huns through the Russians, Soviets, uh, Nazis, uh, and again. So they're much more aware of these types of things. Whereas North Americans tend not to be, and this has really kind of shaken them up to that on the heels of the world, their world being disrupted and their sense of immediate mobility being disrupted as a result of the COVID pandemic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's one of these things where, you know, we think of conflict in a country and we wonder how it affects, you know, assets and people in that country. But, you know, as a person in Poland, Poland, I know, has been, um, and as how you've written about, has, has really dealt with the large brunt of the sort of humanitarian refugee crisis that, that is sort of outpouring of people from Ukraine in response to this. Yes, I mean, uh, a perfect example is my children's class. They started the year uh, with 13 kids in their grade one class, 1B, and uh, they now have 19. Uh, so that's six children, and we're in the extreme north part of the city. As you go towards further south and and towards the, the southeastern corner of Poland, which borders with the Ukraine, you know, cities like Krakow and, and Warsaw and Ratswa um, are really getting overwhelmed uh, at this point. And, you know, you have concerns. We live right on the seaside. There's a Polish naval base. And we literally get up in the morning, look out our living room window at Polish naval ships doing maneuvers. Um, and getting signal information from Kaliningrad, which is a piece of Russia that sticks out into the Baltic between Lithuania and Poland. So you really do sense that this is immediate. And this area really also has a particular history. Many historians would mark the beginning of the Second World War to the morning of September 1st, 1939, when a German warship opened up on a small island battery uh, called Vestaplata in the Gdansk Harbor. It's kind of Poland's Alamo. And for a number of days, a small battalion or a small group on this island of Poles held off this major German onslaught. And they um, finally surrendered, just as they, they did in the Alamo. And I was touring it a couple of summers ago. And as you get in tourist sites, around the world, very earnest young history major as your tour guide, mostly Poles, but there was one Polish-American fellow from Chicago who naturally gravitated to me as an English speaker. And when somebody asked kind of what happened to them, the survivors when they surrendered, they said, well, they headed o over to the SS and, and they were shot. And that's when the fellow from Chicago turned to me and said, yes, my family left in 1938. And our family motto was, the pessimists left and lived, 
the optimist stayed and died. And I thought that was pretty uh, raw, but actually quite a good motto. And I've, over the years, have been dealing with clients from Hong Kong and China, from various parts of the Middle East, various parts of the world who have been thinking about and preparing for these possibilities for generations. And it's a relatively new thing for North Americans to really be thinking about because they have uh, not been the sites of major kind of conflicts, except internal conflicts, or the Canadians and the Americans <laughs> going at it in 1812, or of course the Civil War. So this is a new thing to have the potential threat of a external um, force threatening your comfortable life. Yeah, it's very interesting. I'm a child of the 80s, so I didn't get the brunt of the Cold War, but I got the sort of the last throes of sort of having to worry about you know nuclear weapons and such. And uh, it was deeply unpleasant, and it's very unpleasant to have to all of a sudden have that in our life again. Um, now, David, you always stress the need for what you call a backup plan. And uh, as you've mentioned, for sort of American clients, that's um, it's you know such as Eduardo Saverine, who, who we talked about last time. It's that's it's been more an area of like. Uh, asset protection and, and these sorts of things. Um, oh, the tax regime change. I don't like what's going on. I, let me uh, secure an uh, international passport to try to help protect myself. Um, this is a bit of a different problem, but do you mind just going over um, your concept of a backup plan and sort of what it entails? Sure. And, and kind of the framework that I use with a lot of clients is consider yourself in a wildfire zone. And so specifically for an American what is that threat? What is the wildfire zone? Of course, we have hurricanes and earthquakes and all those natural disasters as a potential threat, even on a short-term basis. Um, taxation um, has been for high net worth, ultra high net worth clients, uh, whether that was when Elizabeth Warren was talking about uh, a wealth tax, that was when Senator Wyden was talking about an ultra millionaires tax, that's whether, you know, a few weeks ago, uh, President Biden came out with his Green Book proposals. And that's certainly been a concern. Uh, another concern that I've started to see from a lot of clients is the extreme polarization, um, societal polarization occurring in the mm -hmm. United States, uh, where you have two sides, and I have clients from across the political spectrum. And, and at the extremes, these are people who are locked into in effect, a religion, a dogma. They, their belief is that the other side are traitors and will steal and or repress, somehow steal a vote. And it was actually an Atlantic uh, magazine essay by a, a fellow named Barton Gelman in December. And I, I went and read it because I had several clients quoted to me within a span of a day and a half. And, and his thesis was, if you are in one of these groups, one of them is going to wake up on November 4th, 2022 or November 4th, 2024, and are going to feel that their country has been stolen from them. And if you feel that the traitors have stolen your country, then violence is an acceptable tool in your toolbox. And that's really concerning uh, for a lot of clients, along with the extreme kind of polarization uh, of just politics in the United States right now. So all of these are wildfires. So if you're in a wildfire zone, well, what do you do? 
Well, the, logically, you engage in fire prevention. So that may be on a tax planning side, doing things like using your unified credit or harvesting tax losses or looking at, at grats or all the normal domestic tax planning. It may be from a security point of view, uh, you know, moving to a different location, getting a dog, getting a gun, um, taking care of some personal security to protect your family wealth and well-being. You should also think about engaging in fire insurance. And that's really alternative residences or citizenships. And that can be, for example, something as simple as a work permit in Canada, which I had a client a number of years ago when a hurricane hit, hit Houston. They, they could bug out very quickly and they had no disruption in their lives. And then once everything was kind of ready back home, both in the personal and business side, they were able to move back or it could be more permanent. So for an American, fire insurance is an alternative citizenship and an alternative residence. And then the last thing you, that logically you would have is a fire escape plan. So from, again, these are gonna be high net worth clients. They will tend to be what the tax law calls a covered expatriate. They'll be subject to two major things, section 877A, which is the deemed disposition exit tax the other is Section 2801, which is the future inheritance tax that the any U.S. person heirs of a covered expatriate would be subject to. And there's some planning opportunities and things that you do in a fire escape plan. Now, just because you have fire insurance and a fire escape plan doesn't mean that you will ever use it. It gives you the comfort of knowing that you'd use it. And you also have some benefits. Uh, alternative citizenships and residences can be everything from, for example, uh, I may have mentioned in my last podcast that my siblings and I didn't go out dancing looking for Europeans to marry, but as it turned out, my sister married a Latvian, my brother married an Italian, I married a Pole, and my younger sister married an Irishman. Now, I'm the only one of the four to actually pick up and move to Europe, but all of my nieces and nephews have done everything from study to a gap year to work to I've got a nephew at Trinity College in Dublin right now. I've got a niece that's been living in Brussels for eight or nine years. Uh, so these are very useful things to have along with the insurance. And the, the real problem or... or um, the real thing that people need to be conscious of is they say, oh, I have an Italian or I have an Irish grandmother. I'll get an Irish passport. Well, it's not as easy as dialing 1-800-I-AM-IRISH and a, and a leprechaun delivers <laughs> a passport to you. There's a, there's a process and timing and all these things to get the proper fire insurance, to set up a fire escape plan, to have those things ready. So if you're concerned about taxation, for example, you can't wait until November 4th and discover, oh, the Democrats held on to the House and they strengthened uh, their position in the Senate so that Senators Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin are no longer have the whip hand and, and some of these tax proposals will come in. Um, you're not going to have time between the year end or the swearing end of the next, next uh, uh, Congress in, in January to be able to put these things in. You have to kind of get that fire insurance and the fire escape plan early to avoid, you know, if the wildfire comes and, and, and hits your, your house. 
and I get a lot of clients who will say things like, well, you know, that's a 25% chance that the Democrats will do that. And to which I say, okay, if you had a 25% chance that your house was going to burn down, would you get fire insurance? Well, of course. Okay, so, and especially for a lot of North Americans and Americans, of course, the United States was an immigration destination country for the last few centuries. So there's a surprising number of people who have claims to um, lineage citizenships. Those may be European citizenships. They may have claims, for example, uh, to make Aliyah in Israel, a, a wide variety of things. So it's not immediately people are going to, you know, have to buy a, a, a citizenship in a small Caribbean island. Quite frankly, probably for every one of those that we have to do for a client, and we don't take commission, so we put those back, but, you know, many more clients, we are doing lineage citizenships in a variety of different countries. So let's, this is, now that you, I like that you brought up this idea of lineage citizenships versus sort of purchased, for lack of a better term, mm -hmm. citizenships. Do you mind just quickly laying out the differences? Because we've talked about second residences and second citizenships, which are both different things, right? Residences and citizenships are different. And now we've sure. added in this idea of sort of lineal citizenships. Do you mind just going through those terms and sort of what they mean and how they're different? Sure. So one of the things is a citizenship is a status for life. A passport is the identity document of a citizen. So there for a finite period, five or 10 years, depending on the country. How do you get that citizenship? Well, you can already have that citizenship in place. For example, Eduardo Saverin, who you mentioned, still had his Brazilian citizenship, but he had become naturalized in the United States. So when he gave up his U.S. citizenship, he still had his Brazilian in hand. So people who, who are naturalized Americans oftentimes will have the citizenship of their birth already in hand. They can, people can also get citizenship by moving to a country like New Zealand or Canada or the United Kingdom, um, getting a junior membership in the country, we'll call that a resident status, um, going through a naturalization period and meeting whatever those naturalization requirements and qualifying for senior membership in the club, uh, which is citizenship. Uh, other countries have said, well, if you are a descendant of a citizen, and that varies from country to country, you will, you're entitled to get the citizenship of your ancestors. And Europe, if, the, if that's a European country, and let's say, for example, your ancestor was from Austria, it doesn't just give you the right to live in Austria, it gives you the right to live in all 27 countries of the, of the mm -hmm. EU. So somebody may say, well, you know, my ancestors from Slovakia or Slovenia, um, but those are both EU countries. So they could go and live in Portugal or Italy or Greece or even Switzerland. Uh, gives them a, a lot of options. The final is if you don't have the time to wait for naturalization and you don't have the family history um, for lineage citizenship, then there are countries which have said, well, in lieu of a naturalization period, we'll take either an investment or a government fee and we'll give you citizenship. So there's a number of different countries that, that do that. There are five, for example, in the Caribbean. Um, but you have to be very careful in kind of understanding and differentiating between them all. And again, because I don't take a commission, I can evaluate these, you know, and clients can understand that I, I will evaluate these and explore other options first. Um, 
but I'm, I'm looking at it completely agnostic. So, for example, the, and the first thing we do is what status is being offered. So there's a, a set of islands, a country called Vanuatu in the Pacific, which said, well, we're going to offer something called honorary citizenship, to which I replied, well, honorary citizenship's like being honorarily pregnant. It doesn't produce the desired result. So that's not a citizenship program. Um, other countries will focus on, well, we can go to 186 countries. Well, unless you're a travel blogger, you don't go to 186 countries. The question is really, can I go to the 12 countries I want to go to? And visas, again, if you're of a net worth where you're considering a citizenship by investment, you're going to be somebody that a high-end tourist that any country which still does require visas of that country, they're happy to give you long-term multiple entry visas. So visa-free travel is a bit of a, a bit of a misnomer. So, and we oftentimes will do combinations of things. Um, I had, for example, a Silicon Valley client who had an Irish grandmother and he said, okay. And I said, well, the problem is as a result of Brexit, everybody in the United Kingdom or actually in the island of Great Britain who has a parent or grandparent has applied and everybody in Northern Ireland has applied. So it's, you will get your Irish citizenship. It just won't happen before that major liquidity event you have coming. So we went and said, okay, well, let's get a citizenship by investment. Uh, what's the cheapest one that we can get? They're all basically about the same processing time. And he used that to expatriate. And, you know, once his Irish passport uh, will come in, you know, the, the Caribbean passport will collect dust in a drawer somewhere. But he would have spent that money to be able to save um, save taxes. And if you're looking at a, you know, uh, if you've got covered interest or, or um, carried interest and you're going to be seeing that go from capital gain rates to ordinary rates or you're going to see capital gain rates increase significantly, um, you know, the delta between the current rate on that unrealized capital gain and the future is quite significant. And if we look at President Biden's uh, proposal for um, an, a, an annual tax, well, that's 20% a year. So would you rather pay, including the Obama surcharge, 23.8% once and be done with the U.S. tax system or be subject to 20% every year? The numbers yeah. kind of make sense very quickly. Absolutely. And I think it's important to draw the distinction here when we're talking about these backup plans. And, we, and you know, we keep coming back to Eduardo Saverine, who did ultimately um, expatriate and, and, you know, drop his U.S. citizenship. But in the, the backup plan phase, while you're holding these other citizenships, but you haven't actually had the incident occur that makes you want to leave, you can still keep your U.S. citizenship. It's not it's not an all or nothing thing where once you start this backup plan, you're now committed to oh, I got to cut myself off from the U.S., right? It's, I, uh, absolutely. I can, have these, I can so, have these passports in my drawer, and then if I use them, then I may have to remove myself, lose my U.S. citizenship to get away from the sort of the U.S. tax regime. But just to, having them in your pocket yeah. doesn't require that you do that. Uh, absolutely. So the United States allows you to have multiple citizenships, 
most people have two, hence the kind of term normally used is, is dual citizenship. I once had a client who had eight citizenships. It was wonderful being his lawyer, but um, you know it had gone beyond <laughs> prudence and a little bit more into a hobby. Um, I hope we didn't have assets in all of those. <laughs> no, well, his original one, which he had given up, was American, so he would have had nine if he had kept the American. But uh, uh, anyway, the, he had a combination of lineage, naturalization, and uh, and citizenships by investment. Um, uh, so yes, the United States allows you to. Uh, you, you're not required. Eduardo Savin wasn't required to give up his Brazilian when he took on American. And likewise, um, if he if if an American gets another citizenship either by lineage or uh, an Israeli citizenship through Aliyah or um, a citizenship by investment that they purchase through a, a citizenship by investment program, um, they can hold on to their American and they may never. Just, they may never trigger their fire escape plan. It just gives them the comfort to know that if they personally, you know, feel the fire is getting too close, they've got a, a way of leaving. And now what you have to be careful of is the other country. So, for example, um, some countries don't allow dual citizenship. So, for example, if you are um, going to become naturalized in, in the Netherlands, the Netherlands doesn't allow dual citizenship. Um, Singapore. Interestingly, Singapore will require you to give up any citizenship that you have to take on Singaporean citizenship. But a quirk in the law is if you subsequently become naturalized in a, or get a citizenship in another country, you don't lose your Singaporean citizenship. So we've had clients who I, I've had American fund managers who we got a Caribbean citizenship for. They gave up their U.S., left the U.S. tax system behind, uh, moved to Singapore, qualified for Singaporean citizenship, gave up their Caribbean citizenship. But we also had had them on the path to naturalization in countries like the U.K., New Zealand, Canada, uh, and after they became Singaporean, they added on to their passport portfolio those other countries. It's interesting. It's like a whole order of operations problem almost. Yeah, it, it's the the planning is um, there are a certain number of advisors, and I, again, I've been doing this for over three decades now, and uh, I work with you know some top. U.S. advisors, but this is this is very much kind of a, a specialty area, uh, and you know there are um, anywhere from from five to twenty thousand people a year who do this, who give up their high net worth people who give up their their citizenship. Well, if you look at the number of you know total high net worth taxpayers in the United States, that's a fairly small percentage. Um, now. Why don't more people do it? Well, a lot of people aren't aware of <laughs> that it's a possibility. I remember back in in uh, the summer of 1995, Forbes had a cover story called The New Refugees, and it featured John Templeton and Mark Moblius and Ken Dart and a few other people. And I've been doing expatriations about maybe two or three a year up to that point, and I saw that cover story, and I thought, well, you know, those were interesting. Well, they happened, but this is going to kind of kill it. But what that article did was it shone a very bright light on a fairly dark secret of the U.S. tax code. All of a sudden, people 
started saying, you mean every other country doesn't tax you based on citizenship? Mm-hmm. You mean there's a way out? And, you know, it's, it's taken off from there. So the number of people who have wanted to expatriate is increased tremendously as a result of things like FATCA, for example, uh, and they may not be high net worth, but the number of, of people who want to do it uh, has increased dramatically. And the problem is a lot of the, you, in order to um, renounce your citizenship, you have to do that at a U.S. mission, at a U.S. consulate or embassy outside of the United States, a lot of which have been severely restricted as a re- result of COVID. So we've seen, you know, I call it making dinner reservations, making the appointments. <laughs> that has been um, uh, tricky, uh, and we've been flying clients all over the place, and and had some some delays and some successes and some frustrations. Uh, it's starting to open up um, a bit. But what people, what we have had to, and we're, we're actually bringing some mandamus actions uh, against the State Department, saying. A U.S. citizen has the right to renounce. We're not asking U.S. government's permission to do this. We are, this citizen is exercising a right to do this. And a, a right delayed is a right denied. So hence why we're, we're for those kind of more stubborn missions, we are uh, we're actually moving to mandamus cases. Yeah, and, yeah, I probably should have covered this like way up front, but... You know, just to have it in here, I think a lot of advisors and, and you know people who don't deal in, in international uh, issues like this, you know, they hear ta- you know, people worried about taxes and they hear you know Caribbean islands and they get this image in their head that something sketchy is going on, right? But it's important to stress that the, the programs we're talking about here are a there's many of them in many sort of what people would call, for lack of a better term, more legitimate countries if you prefer, and they're all legit. Like this is not you know done correctly you're not going to end up in the Panama Papers Part 2 Electric Boogaloo um, you know, in the future because you're doing something wrong. This is, this is a legit thing to do. It is, you're not you're doing anything illegal. This is nothing sketchy here. Yeah, no, this is, this is clearly a, uh, a strategy that, again, relative to the total number of taxpayers, not enough, but still thousands of people are doing a year. Uh, it is the the acquisition of your citizenship. This isn't, you know, uh, a back alley leaving an envelope for a diplomat. This is qualifying either for naturalization according to the rules of that country or lineage according to the rules of that country or citizenship by investment with countries which have that in their legislation. Um, that The acquisition of the citizenship, there's is completely legal. The ability to, uh, for an American to hold what, more than one citizenship is, again, completely uh, within the U.S. law. And the right to renounce your citizenship uh, is a, a right that has been confirmed by the Supreme Court and one that has been exercised a number of, of thousands, tens of thousands of times. Um, the interesting um, kind of question is, so right now, the effect is if you have more than $2 million in worldwide assets or you have had an average tax paid, I believe it's 171000 U.S., that's the amount of tax paid, not taxable income, uh, over the last five years. If you trigger either of those two tests, you are what's called a covered expatriate. 
And that has two impacts. One is, as I mentioned, Section 877A, which is the much-discussed exit tax um, on unrealized capital gain. You take all your normal deductions. For example, you may have principal residence. You may have QSOPs. You may have – and then you look at the capital gain. Then you have an exemption, I believe, which is 740000 on the first capital gain. And then you start paying tax on everything above that. But you pay it once and you're done. And if you expatriate in July, you don't actually pay that in July. You pay it the following April 15th. Um, so there are some you know, benefits to – I have a lot of Silicon Valley clients who we do it um, prior to the, an IPO when they have founder shares which have lockups and restrictions. We get you know, valuations and it's not the S1s. You know, because there's discounting opportunities, et cetera, but we get third-party valuations and, and all those things. So if we look at Eduardo Savern, for example, he expatriated about a year and a bit, 14, 15 months before the um, Facebook IPO. And it became known just before the IPO that uh, he had done this and he had paid the tax the mark-to-market tax, 877A, that was brought in by, I think the gentleman's name was Charles Schumer from New York, a certain senator. Well, that didn't stop Senator Schumer from, just before the IPO, declaring that somehow Eduardo Savern had cheated the U.S., evaded $67 million in tax. Well, what he did was take the IPO figure and said, well, if it would be worth this today, this is how much you would pay if he was expatriating today. But he did it before following the rules that I set up. Uh, so there wasn't any tax evasion. It was, there was, he paid the tax that was, he was obligated to pay under the law. And uh, he came up with something called the Expatriate, the Expatriate Act. And it called for things like retroactively making what was legal previously illegal um, you know, it never even got past first reading committee, <laughs> but it made for great press that night uh, for um, Senator Schumer. And so that is why a lot of clients will naturally ask questions uh, about, you know, I've, you know, is this shady? Is there something going on here? Another question that a lot of clients ask is, well, can I ever come back? and visit, you know, relatives or friends or, you know, I've got businesses in, in, and children and grandchildren in the United States. And in those, and the answer is yes, absolutely. Whether you need a visa or not, well, that depends on whether you, what passport you have. If you've got, you know, an Italian citizenship that you got through an Italian uh, grandparent, that's under the U.S. Visa Waiver Program. Italians don't need visas that go back into the United States. If you've got a citizenship from, you know, St. Kitts and Nevis or Dominica, those countries do require it. But again, I've never had a client who needed a visa get anything but the maximum. And I've never had a client refuse entry. I've never had a client even pulled into secondary. The problem is not coming in. The problem is staying too long and triggering tax status under the sub mm. substantial presence test. So I like to say it's almost like Homeland Security saying, come on in, and the IRS is behind them whispering, and we hope you stay too long.
<laughs> now you can get tricky and, and and extend that time by being tax resident in a tax treaty jurisdiction. Of course, you'll pick a tax treaty jurisdiction where, through you know, tax regimes like the non-dom uh, system in the UK or the lump sum system in Switzerland or Italy or Greece, um, or things like the, the non-habitual tax resident status in Portugal, that you're not paying, you're not jumping out of the US pot and jumping into somebody else's tax fire. Um, but yeah, there, there's you know some interesting combinations of things to do. And that's why you know this is not a DIY program. And, and a lot of the work that I do is supplementing family offices and trusted advisors on this fairly um, unique area of law. Yeah, and I think that's a, a great place to sort of close things up, right? Stressing that you know these are legitimate programs, and this is much more complicated than simply throwing a dart at a map of the Caribbean and then showing up with a hundred thousand dollars in a briefcase. Um, there's a lot that goes on here. There's very complex orders of operations. You're because by moving into the international system, you're now subjecting yourself to the laws of multiple jurisdictions, which you need to know all of and which may conflict in ways that are not particularly convenient for you or necessarily particularly comprehensive. Um, you need to have someone like David or, so, or an expert, at least, that can help you get through this process, even if you've already identified exactly where you want to go. And, and also triggering kind of landmines, like one, for example, in the United Kingdom, people will go there while they have a wonderful remittance tax basis. Yes, it's also the divorce capital of the world. <laughs> and I have two twins. Statistically, one of them is going to get divorced. Not that there's a Lesperance treasure chest anywhere. But um, when you're talking about divorce, you're talking about a percentage of capital. You're talking about tax, you're talking about a percentage of income. So that's something that people really need to be conscious of also. That's about all the time that we have for today. I'd like to, to thank David Lesperance for once again joining us and, and being a great guest talking about a very complex topic. Thank you, David. My pleasure, David. And for all our listeners, I'll see you, or I guess you'll hear me, on the next episode of Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. Thank you for listening to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. Click the subscribe button below to become notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of InformaWealthManagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.